Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. From the Milton Met Studio and I use Radio TV Building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm Bob Salzberg from the WFIU WTIU Newsroom, and I'm co-hosting today with Kerma Schultz, who's also from the WFIU WTIU News Department. This week we're talking about a lot of issues that have to do with women's health and women's aging with uh, three experts who we have assembled as guests today. We have two in the studio, Dr. Pamela Jackson, Pam. Uh, is professor of sociology at Indiana University. And Dr. Radhika Parameswaran is a professor uh, in the uh, Indiana University Media School. We also are being joined by the f- um, on the phone by Dr. Kelly Casper, who's a gynecologist for IU Health Physicians in Indianapolis. And all have said they want to go by their first name. So we won't be using doctor too much in this program today. You can uh, give us a call um, at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us your questions at news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So I'm really happy to have everybody here with us today. We were just talking with uh, with Kelly Casper uh, before about, you know, the breadth of, of the discussion. And Kelly, you were saying some interesting things about how you were happy to have this makeup of the panel. I wish you would just repeat them for our, all of our listeners. Sure, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I was saying uh, before we started on air that I'm really excited for the composition of the panel that you created today. Um, I oftentimes will see women who come into my office who have concerns and complaints regarding their health, specifically their gynecologic health, which honestly usually is around their sexual health. Um, And in my head, I oftentimes think that, you know, society and societal norms and the views of society um, in regards to women plays a role into some of this. And I don't have the research to back that up. This is just what I... I see during my day-to-day practice, and so I'm excited to have the other panel members because I think they probably do have that knowledge um, based on just their everyday interactions through work and their research, and so I'm really excited as we sort of work through this over the next hour or so and talk about it, um, if in our discussion perhaps we can't touch on some of my thoughts of what might be going on with women's health, um, mainly um, for me around their sexuality as they age, and if that is truly the case, um, and if there's maybe even some research to support that. And so I'm I'm interested to hear what all the panel members Great. might have to say yeah. as we get into it. All right. Yeah. Roddick is going to join in already. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I just want to, you know, um, yeah, I'm so glad you brought up this issue because um, when we think about the media, there's a temptation to think about it. Uh, in terms of a cause and effect model, right? That you just see something on the media and then we go out and do that immediately. Um, That is not how media work. Uh, You know, media are part of a complex system of different kinds of cultural influences on us, including, you know, things like family, school, the religious institutions we go to and so on. But one of the interesting theories that I really uh, have come to appreciate about how the media work is to think about media as a form of pedagogy, right? That is in that the media, um, you know, put issues before us that we have to think about and what they don't put in front of us, we don't think about, right? And as you're right. gradually exposed over a long period of time, this becomes, you know, um, a sort of um, a pedagogy that is quietly and over the long term teaching us, right, how to think. Um, and so if we don't have the opportunity 
opportunity to see older people enjoying their sexuality, right? Um, having sexual feelings, being sexual beings. And in terms of women, uh, older women often portrayed uh, as asexual or passive sexual partners, right? So that you see maybe an ad and, you know, it's only about the man needing, um, you know, Viagra, right? And no reference to women's sexuality. It contributes to this larger problem of how older women are seen as invisible, asexual, not beautiful, right? Not not experiencing sexual pleasure and so on. And so these are just, you know, um, some sort of broad ideas, you know, Kelly, that I wanted to share in response to this excellent issue you've brought up. I'd like to follow Absolutely. up. Oh, go I apologize. Um, no, I'd like go. to follow up with Radhika about that. Um, how do you think that the pressure to appear youthful affect women's health as they age and their attitudes about health in general? Yeah, um, I think this is one of the most, you know, um, pernicious problems, right, of our, in, in general, for all of us, that we live in a youth-obsessed culture in general. Uh, so even if older women are, you know, appearing in the media quite a bit, it's all about how they want to be young. And so, you know, there's a greater presence of older women in the media. But, you know, so the latest issue of Oprah magazine is all about, the you know, uh, in a very generous and, you know, sort of giving tone. Right. But I see an insidious message there. It's all about uh, age perfect makeup. Hey, we haven't addressed makeup for older women, and now we're going to be so kind to them and produce makeup only for older skin, right? And But it's not about looking old. It's, again, about concealing, right? Concealing. Yeah. And so we do live in a youth-obsessed culture, and I would say it affects women more because, um, you know, the norms of beauty are much harsher on women in general. And uh, aging, I would argue, aging Ageism is all about, you know, it's a form of inflicting terror on people. And I'll tell you what I mean by that, that old people, elderly people, aging people are seen as repugnant to society because that is what people don't want to become. Right. They represent, you know, so they're not outside of you. That is who you will be soon. And therefore, the terror, I think, is even greater. Right. Um, so, yeah, we live in a youth obsessed society. It, uh, it is a very gendered obsession with beauty. And that tends to affect older women uh, more, I would say, than older men. I want to ask. Well, I, oh, go I ahead. think that's because there's a double standard there. Right. <laughs> because how often do we hear that men improve with age, that they look better with the gray hair, that, right? Like, my husband is a perfect example. He's gray, and people say, oh, he looks so nice with that gray hair. (laughs) They don't say that about me. I'm getting my hair colored every six weeks because I want to cover up my gray. So there is a double standard, I think, there. So I do think women are affected more often than men in terms of ageism and how am I supposed to grow old in this youth-obsessed society? I agree. So I want to bring Pam Jackson into the conversation. She's a professor of sociology at IU. So, you know, you've been listening to our other panelists. How mm-hmm. does all this play out in, you know, in the in the workforce, in the work world? Well, the um, of course, uh, women's images and the way they present themselves in the, in the workplace affects uh, things like promotion, uh, very importantly. And it also, though, affects women even before they sort of enter the workplace. We have gender inequality and wages that women continue to uh, deal with and cope with. But this issue of kind of women in the media, besides um, sort of their sexual health and uh, their sexual identity, it's also important to talk about the different roles that women are um, are dealing with. So uh, many women are working and taking care of children, um, and for this, uh, especially kind of the, the baby boomers at this point and those of us who are sort of on the tail end of uh, baby boomers, uh, women are also taking care of aging parents. And so women have all kinds of challenges as they get older. Um, and now we're seeing a trend of adult children returning home. So we have uh, mothers taking care of perhaps uh, their young children, taking care of adult children, taking care of aging parents. And some people are calling this 
um, the crowded nest because at times they're uh, also taking care of an ailing spouse. And so caregiving is uh, one of these roles that we're concerned about in regards to women as they are moving across the life course and facing these challenges. The other uh, issue that's uh, receiving a great deal of attention in the literature on women's health is this issue of financial strain. And so um, as the economy continues to change, as the um, occupational structure continues to change, uh, the types of jobs that are available to people, then women are also finding themselves sort of behind this eight ball because they are accumulating uh, more debt uh, because they're not occupying the highest positions or getting paid as much as men. They're accumulating more debt over the life course, and we're finding that financial strain over time um, also accumulates and affects women's mental and physical health Mm -hmm. uh, over time. Yeah, I think this is an interesting issue because if if women as they age, you know, are facing so many caregiving burdens as well as being in the workplace, then the question becomes, where do they have the time to be healthy? Right. This is a challenge. Right. Where? Because and this brings in for me important issues of class race into this uh, topic, because uh, the women who tend to, you know, not have to have the least time. Right. A lot of times tend to be minority women, women who are in working class jobs uh, and, you know, doing uh, caregiving at multiple ends. Mm -hmm. How do they we were just talking right before coming into this room about how my aspiration is you know, not to get a hobby, really, but just to have a few minutes to go to the gym or to a few minutes to stretch in my own house and so on. Right. Uh, so the question of health is very, to me, very intimately tied also, uh, you know, to, um, you know, having access to to leisure time to do these types of activities and be healthy. I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Kelly Casper to, to refer to or to react to some of what you have just said, but I want to give our phone numbers again, 812-855-0811 or toll free at one 285 9348 You can also send us questions at news at indianapublicmedia.org. We'd really like to hear from you if you have any questions or any comments or any topics you want our panelists to talk about today when it comes to women's health, uh, women's aging, all the challenges that women are facing today You know, as, as the world is changing and their, their roles are expanding, it seems to me. So, uh, Kelly, any reaction yes. to what you've heard from our other two panelists? So absolutely, and I think we all see the same sort of phenomenon in all of our specialties, Um, and I see it across multiple generations. So for me, it starts with the adolescent young female who comes in, um, and just sort of this idea of sexuality and being comfortable with your sexuality and being able to discuss that and having it be a normal, natural part of who a young woman is. And we touched base a little bit that that's really affected by a lot of her upbringing, whether that's within the household, the family, whether it's um, perhaps some religious um, influence. And so, you know, I'll see young women who come in who are just sort of entering this phase of their life where they're exploring their sexuality and they're just not comfortable with it. And so I do think something needs to occur within society um, that we start having those conversations and that we're comfortable having those conversations so that young women... Um, are a bit more comfortable um, with themselves. Um, The next big one that I see oftentimes is sort of um, just started a family. You know, the woman who's just started um, having children, and because they are out in the workplace, they have this full-time job, um, they're trying to maintain a household, and now they're trying to care for a young baby or a toddler, and they come in exhausted. They are absolutely exhausted. They don't have time to go out to the gym and and, you know, do physical activity to improve their health. And how I see them is that I'm just not interested anymore in a sexual relationship with my partner. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, you know, they're there thinking there's a pill that they need or hormone level that needs to be checked. Mm -hmm. And that's not it at all. They're just exhausted. And this is the piece that I would be curious to hear from our other two panel members. I think a huge part of it is because, um, you know, society's view of women and what their role is in the household hasn't changed that much Mm. in the last decade. Mm -hmm. They're still expected to take care of the children and still expected to take care of the house. Now they also are out having a job, Mm -hmm. um, 
just in order to financially make it work for their family. And then the last is, you know, the postmenopausal woman who comes in and says, well, my husband and I haven't been sexually active, and his doctor gave him Viagra. Mm-hmm. And the doctor forgot they're a couple, and mm-hmm. there's another person in that sexual relationship. And, you know, a woman who's postmenopausal who isn't on hormone replacement whose husband all of a sudden has Viagra, and now they can all of a sudden have a sexual relationship, that is never going to go well for her. Mm. And so I do think it's important, even in healthcare I see, we forget the other partner. We forget the woman mm-hmm. in those as they age in those later stages of life. Yeah. I, I think you brought up an interesting point, you know, Kelly, in that, that talking about women and aging or you know, how, how society constructs femininity, um, how do we construct uh, young women, you know, who talk about their sexuality actively? Do we construct them as promiscuous, as outside of, you know, middle class respectability? Um, these are all, uh, I, I feel sometimes we approach them in very compartmentalized ways. That is, if you just target, you know, the particular audience, we can fix the problem. So, for example, the man coming in and you just fix his problem. Um, I don't know that this type of isolated, compartmentalized approaches are very useful. I think what we instead have to think about is a much more broad-based, society-based education about each other, right? And so for me, one of the struggles I've faced, you know, I grew up in uh, India before India became what it is today, very westernized, very modernized, right? And so... Mm-hmm. Um, we, you didn't have this sort of, uh, you know, uh, a culture where, you know, you have youth, adolescents, then you have middle age, then you have elderly, and their paths don't cross, right? That is what, that is how we think about life here. So even, for example, I subscribe to Oprah magazine, but that's not something a 17-year-old is supposed to read, because that is my place in society, right? And so we live in these worlds where, you know, um, you know, where men do what they do, women do what they do and the paths don't cross so then we don't learn about each other and we don't know how to help each other right and so um, I think this contributes to some of this issue of healthcare as well where you see things in isolation and you're not saying how does this affect the family right how does this affect society and so on so if there's some way to think of more integrated you know where our lives are spilling into each other's you know much more and we can learn more about each other then i think we could support each other more and i would I totally um, agree and i yes. would add to that actually the um one of the themes that um my co-author and i came across in this book that we wrote on how families matter was focused on family health and especially the ways in which um married couples extended family members um, sort of uh, spoke to each other across these lines regarding their well-being. And typically in the area of sociology, when we do um, research on mental health or physical health, we're using these individual level models, kind of each individual's health is a function of their own predispositions, of their own exposure to environmental factors or their own Uh, social characteristics, but what we find in these uh, in-depth interviews are people who talk about their health in relation to the health of other people in the family. So Mm. a woman is upset and depressed, not necessarily because of something that happened on her job, but because her brother was laid off um, and faced discrimination, or because her niece um, is having problems in her relationships. And so one of the things that we advocate is for uh, more social science research to kind of go back to this holistic approach to health and uh, not just evaluate individuals, even in the medical field, not just evaluate individuals in terms of their own personal circumstances, but to take into account what else is happening uh, in the lives of women and men and their children. To follow up on that. I'm I'm sorry. Sorry. I think that's super important. And I do think we tend to miss the opportunity in medicine. We, there's, there are a lot of buzzwords about holistic health and approaches to medicine, but still that typically applies to the individual patient who's sitting in your office, and the holistic approach is just tailored toward that one person. And I agree. I think the holistic approach is actually 
that person and the people in their lives right. who yes. influence their health, whether it's emotional health, mental health, physical health. It is a broader picture and more. it's much more far-reaching than the one person who's sitting in my office. And we tend to miss that, I think. I agree. Yeah, yeah. There's patterns and networks, right, that influence yes. who we are. And it's good right. not to miss that. So, Pam, I have a question for you. Um, some of the stu- some of your studies have shown a higher socioeconomic status and marriage uh, marriage allow one um, to more easily fulfill social obligations. Where does this leave single women? Well, it leaves single women relying on their social support networks. Um, and in some cases, uh, these are very useful. It depends on who's in that network. And in other cases, it's not very useful. It also depends on that single status. So uh, never married women, for example, um, have better mental health than married women among at least African-Americans. And in some cases among whites, there's no difference between married women and never married women in regards to their health outcomes. It's the divorced and the widowed who have the worst health outcomes among women. And those women are reporting poor health outcomes primarily because of the lack of economic resources at their disposal. So again, we end up going back to the availability of jobs that pay well, uh, jobs that are equitable, um, and uh, women's abilities to avoid discrimination or bias in the workplace, all of those things um, are mattering. So the marriage question, it really depends on who that non-married category of women are. Mm-hmm. It depends on race and ethnicity. But at the end of the day, uh, women are reporting poor mental health um, than men, especially primarily because of lack of economic resources. All right. right. You guys, this show is flying by. We're halfway through, and we're going to take a short break. Uh, We're talking about women's health issues from a variety of different perspectives today. Uh, We're on Noon Edition on WFIU. We'll be right back. From the Milton Met Studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live, and you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg along with Kerma Schultz, and we're talking today about women's health issues. We have Dr. Kelly Casper, who's joining us from Indianapolis. She's a gynecologist for IU Health Physicians. Dr. Pamela Jackson is a professor of sociology at Indiana University, and Dr. Radhika um, Swaram is a professor in media at Indiana University's Media School. If you have questions or comments, give us a call at 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We do have one question that's come in uh, from our producer in the booth. How does returning to work too quickly after childbirth affect long-term health? Kelly, do you want to take that? Sure, I'll start that. Um, again, I think if we're going to view this holistic approach of healthcare and well-being in our patient, if we're assuming our patient is the mother returning to work too quickly, I think you also need to include the health of the child as well as the health mm-hmm. of the household. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that mothers who return to work too quickly, whether that's by their standards or the family standards, whomever, um, they tend to suffer a higher rate of depression, um, which then can manifest in all sorts of other issues, um, difficulties with sleeping, difficulties bonding with their infant. If there are breastfeeding difficulties, maintaining breastfeeding, which we know um, breastfeeding is 
early in life the best source of nutrition for an infant. So if a mother returns to a workplace that doesn't support mm-hmm. uh, being able to pump and supply that breast milk and all of a sudden she's needing to provide formula for her child, um, that can have negative effects on the health of the child. But then also financial effects formula is not inexpensive. Mm-hmm. Breast milk is free. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's very far-reaching. Um, if she's unhappy, she'll be unhappy at the home, which can affect her partner, other children in the household. Um, she'll mo- more than likely be less productive at work as well. So um, it can have far-reaching consequences. Yeah, I just want to add that I can imagine, too, at work, you know, if you have a really, you have crises at home with your baby and you have to keep leaving, you right. know, um, and I can see that, you know, becoming a form of discrimination as well. People talk about, you know, the lack of productivity and so on. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I can imagine that it's just very stressful for a young mother. Mm-hmm. And so research actually also finds that um, when women have reliable, trustworthy and affordable uh, child care options, um, they make a, a smoother transition back to work. And that transition becomes very important because women who have a consistent work history early in life actually have better health over time and they live longer. And so that connection to child care is critical. And I'll just quickly add that, you know, it's a related issue that many women, um, you know, that I know who are in their 60s and 70s are caring for their grandchildren, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so going back to the issue that Pam brought up earlier, this is a valuable resource. And Kelly, back to your point, I mean, that is part of the family, you know, looking at the holistic, um, you know, structure in place to help a young mother. Mm-hmm. So, Pam, you brought up, a, you know, affordable child care as a really, as a, an important issue in all this. And so I guess I want to ask about about health policy and other policy issues. Are there things that that um, you think need to be done? Or is there, you know, if you had a magic wand and can say, here's one thing that I really would like to have Turn done. Turn us into Sweden? That, yeah, right. <laughs> that would, that would. It's done. All right. So I there's one. I was just thinking yeah. we should just be more European. Exactly. Uh-huh. So let's dig into that a little bit. So what what kinds of things, uh, what kind of policies would you, would you like to see that would help um, women meet some of these challenges that they have with their health? Um, so, so this is an old question, and um, we all know the answers. So I guess I'll repeat some of them. The, um, so we know that on-the-job child care works best, and uh, when women or fathers, men, can have their children close by. They don't have to worry then about any type of emergency or being able to get away and uh, drive hours in order to perhaps take care of children. So on-site child care is the best. And, of course, um, having that be high-quality care matters mm-hmm. uh, and quite and affordable. So when an employer can subsidize uh, the cost of child care or when the government can create programs mm-hmm. to subsidize child care and, um, you know, just uh, confirm that it is uh, the best child care possible. Basically, when we value children mm-hmm. the, way that, uh, the way that we say we value children and then translate that into policy, then it helps the entire family, not just women, but it also benefits their children in the short term and in the long term, and it benefits uh couples, uh, and it benefits extended families. So that would release some of the pressure on grandparents who are asked to Mm -hmm. parent again Mm -hmm. um, during their perhaps years that they anticipated uh, being in retirement and enjoying uh, their time (coughs) off. And so it would release the pressure on the family just across multiple points uh, and across multiple generations. Yeah. And I'll just quickly add, Pam covered a lot of great territory already, but um, definitely, um, you know, encouraging all workplaces to just have more flexible policies when women need them uh, and and not having silent penalties for this. Right. So doing it and then, um, you know, uh, establishing that this this is a fair way. 
not in a condescending or patronizing way, right? That they're accommodating, tolerating, getting rid of that type of language and just saying, you know, this is this is how it it should be done and we're doing the right thing here um, and, and letting women know that there's not a penalty for that, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so creating a climate of, you know, uh, understanding and uh, encouragement, I think, would also help a lot. I just want you to add to that silent penalties. What do you mean by that? Uh, what I mean by that is that, uh, you know, that that corporations and, uh, and workplaces accommodate women, um, but quietly talk among themselves about how this person is not eligible for a promotion. This person should not be given that challenging project, right? This person should not be put in charge of something that would reward her, right, down the road. Uh, and so doing these things quietly, you know, among themselves, and it's all kind of penalizing her for going down the road that you know um, that men a, a man single man perhaps might not have gone gone down that road Got yeah you. and actually and I, I would Oh, yeah. And I would just say, just to add to that, men are actually rewarded mm. uh, when they have children. Yes, mm-hmm. And so there's a bump, absolutely. actually, in their income. Uh, and yes. they're much more likely to be considered for promotion. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if we had some of these policies in place, and also for me, a big piece is maternity leave or paternity leave. Mm-hmm. Or for me, I think it's more important family leave. Right. Um, if these policies were in place, then there wouldn't, I don't think we would hear that sort of quiet penalty yes conversation because that's just the expected and that is how it is yeah um and six weeks that is ludicrous <laughs> for the for a mother or a father by six weeks you're so exhausted you probably shouldn't be driving a car much less returning to the workplace being responsible for who knows what it may be for a physician you're responsible for someone's life right um you know it, i just i think there needs to be some vast reform in how we view family, children, bearing children, the leave around that. Um, I agree. And, and, and this is the irony to me is that, you know, when you look at many countries now, including Japan, for example, you know, um, women are not having children. Right. You, you populations right. are aging in some of these countries. Mm-hmm. And when you look at these policies, you can see why it's expensive to have children. You do. You don't get the leave. You're exhausted. You know, um, so if we perhaps had these policies and a different climate, women wouldn't be, you know, do, you know, so reluctant to go down that road. And of course, sure, we, and I, I'm sorry. Go I ahead, think Kelly. the countries where there are those policies in place, what we've seen in women having it appropriate amount of time away with support with their partner also on leave and their job is guaranteed when they return they return and they're happier and more productive yes right Right? yes yeah okay we're going to go to the phones we have a a phone call from charlotte go ahead charlotte hi hey charlotte thank you this is an important program as far as i'm concerned because i'm experiencing being old and i've gone through all these stages and I don't mind being old, but I think there's an important thing that should be remembered when people get older. Now I'm over 85. I can't believe it. So I spend all, every one of those 85 years doing something and being someplace and, and having a family and a job and, and working in the community and losing a husband who I dearly love. But, and I'm not entirely healthy myself, but I've been getting... Oh, we lost Charlotte. I know Charlotte likes to visit. She still likes to visit with people. Charlotte, 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 Zitlow, our good friend yeah. Charlotte Zitlow. Oh, yes. And I was just going to add that um, we can't, of course, go without talking about the Affordable Care Act and that coverage and uh, the fact that the expansion to Medicaid also increased the number of women who, who are covered by health insurance. And I'm sure Kelly uh, especially knows um, the number of women who benefited in 2016 from that uh, mandate. And uh, it included preventive health care services, including contraception use. Yes. Fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That was was a a huge um, success for us in health care, I have to say. Karma? Um, Renica, how how do you think that media representation affect how women are treated in the workplace? Mm. 
yeah, good question. Um, I I would say you know very broadly speaking, and you mean not just older women, but just Correct. women in general. Yes, um, you know, um, I would say that you know uh, we're beginning to see more and more you know assertive women in the media than than we did before. Um, but in general, I would say that. Despite, you know, having, um, you know, programs and shows and, you know, uh, women reporters, you know, we have uh, Christiana Amanpour, who's an older woman, who's such a good role model. Yeah. Overall, the construction of femininity, right, as um, demure, passive, etc., has still not gone away, no. right? It's still there. Um, and so uh, I can imagine that women in the workplace, you know, if they're trying to be in leadership, roles, um, if they're trying to be assertive, if they're trying to counter a male colleague's opinions, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, and if they're older, in some ways, it's probably easier because older women can be seen to some degree, um, you know, in the professional workplace, if they have a lot of accomplishments as having earned the right to be assertive, right? right? But for younger women, I can imagine how that's still uh, really hard. So in many ways, you know, um, what we think of as professional accomplishment and what we think of as professional success, uh, earning the rewards for that is, you know, can be seen as counter to what we think of as ideal femininity, right? And so um, that, so I would say overall, in the big picture, uh, I think that continues to be a problem. Uh, we do have, again, I must say, society has been through a lot of change. If we even think about a show like the Oprah show and what, you know, Oprah, you know, represented uh, her career, that's something really, really positive. But at the same time, I would also say that, you know, the emphasis, for example, you know, that Oprah, the Oprah show has placed or her magazine on beauty and ideal femininity mm -hmm. is still continuing. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so we have to acknowledge the positive, but also look at the persistent problem that 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 continues. So we're having a little and, little trouble with our uh, phone line, but we we have Charlotte back and she wants to finish her point. So, Charlotte, go ahead, please. Yeah. yeah. OK. To that point, I think. My experience is that, that being prepared and knowing what I'm talking about has, has been very helpful through all the years. But I also want to say that now that I am old and I don't care, I, and I do take care of myself, I look okay, but I'm not beautiful. But that, um, that I think a, a real, real problem in dealing with. Yeah, we continue uh -oh. to. Continue to have problems with our line. I hope we can get Charlotte to finish her point. Maybe she can just tell our producer what her final point is and we can get, get that on the air. I okay. think there was some interesting terminology in that last conversation. At one point, it was women in the workplace who are older have earned their right to be more assertive. And I would argue that we don't use that same terminology with men in the workplace. Mm. Um, and mm -hmm. it's interesting that concept around, well, if a woman's been in a role for long enough, then she can be assertive or outspoken. Um, and I guess I, I wonder why is that not okay for a woman who's not been in the workplace that long, who maybe is younger? And why does anyone have to earn their right? to be assertive in, mm. in their role. And this um, bears out uh, even in uh, the surveys when we ask uh, women and men whether or not they face discrimination in the workplace, whether they feel that um, they have to demonstrate more competence than other people. And women are twice as likely um, to report uh, discrimination. And they're more likely, 23% uh, of women actually say that they feel that they're treated as if they are more incompetent or less less competent uh, than their male peers um, compared to just 6% of men who feel that way about uh, their female peers. And so it plays out in the workplace every day uh, as women are entering into more male-dominated fields. The good news, though, is that uh, younger people are having a little better of a time, I should say, I guess younger women. Um, especially in terms of pay equity. Uh, some recent research by the Pew Research Center showed that women ages 25 to 34 um, are earning 90 cents on the every dollar for men. And um, the average, actually, uh, for, for women um, 
uh, before that time was 85 cents. And so that seems to be on an increase, at least for the younger generation. That, of course, is also tied to the fact that women are more educated than they've right. ever been. And mm-hmm. so a higher percentage of women are actually completing uh, their college degrees than men, and a higher percentage of women are uh, completing their advanced degree as well. So that puts them uh, in those jobs that pay more. And, and and some of the young women then are seeing the returns on that. Yeah, and I, I'm wondering, too, you know, um, as more women you know, enter the workplace and become supervisors, right? And become bosses of younger women, how that might be changing the dynamics of the workplace. Um, I just happened to be reading a book in the field of uh, public relations, and there the researchers do point out that older women uh, are making a big difference in their workplaces, right? They tend to be better mentors. They know and they've experienced what young women have gone through, and so they're able to connect connect with them on a personal level in a way that perhaps uh, older men uh, may not be able to. So not that they're not mentors who are older men. There are, right? But that, that, but that you know, as we see, um, you know, older women in the workplace, it's beginning to make a difference. Yeah. So uh, Charlotte did call back. She left uh, the end of her thought. She, she just says women still want to be productive and want to be treated with respect even as they age. And as she said, she's uh, over 85 now, but, uh, but this Charlotte, Charlotte Zitlow, people in Monroe County know that she has been a, uh, a trailblazer and a person who's broken a lot of barriers and has been a leader in the community for probably 40, 50 years. So she's right. been here and she's done a lot of things that she's fought a lot of, had to overcome a lot of challenges that now perhaps we're starting to overcome a little bit. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that, you know, I think when she uh, she said she's 85 now, right? Mm-hmm. And so there is this window of time, I think, when women can claim some uh, space, you know, for being assertive. But once you get past a certain age, then you're seen as frail, mm-hmm. right? Dispensable, mm-hmm. uh, not beautiful. And so you, that assertion disappears. So this is a quality that goes in and out of women's lives, mm-hmm. you know. And so um, that's something I think important to note. Ke- Kelly, any other mm-hmm. reaction to that? Um, I would agree. And again, we see this in healthcare. Um, and I actually have personal experience with this last week. I have a grandmother who's 99. She is in excellent health. She is a beautiful woman. Mm. She is strong, both mentally, like her brain, her mind is as sharp as it was when she was 49, as it was when she was 39. In fact, I often forget things that she remembers. So I'll ask me, birthday. Um, and she was ill um, over the past weekend, and the initial sort of response that was received in the healthcare arena was, oh, she's 99, we really don't need to worry or do that much for her, mm-hmm. which is exactly the wrong thought, mm-hmm. um, right? You need, we, need, we need to talk to our, our patients, we need to respect our elderly, we need to, you know, treat them as though they are still productive members of society. Um, and we don't need to just write them off in any aspect mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of their lives because of a number, because of a year, because of an age. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I completely agree with Charlotte. Okay. They want to be productive and be treated with respect. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you. Pam, getting back to um, how women are treated in the workplace, um, how does being a minority woman, because they're so largely underrepresented in the media in general, um, how is how how does being in the workplace as a minority woman um, differ from being a white woman? Um, so some of the work that I did a while ago focused on being a token in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And so um, that work focuses on, um, and I mentioned some of these uh, elements earlier, whether or not uh, you feel that you are the representative of your group and, and therefore that affects the way people interact with you and and uh, come to you with different questions, whether or not you feel like you have to demonstrate more competence than other mm-hmm. people, um, whether or not there's um, some level of uh, value conflicts or people at least assume that your values are different than theirs. And so minority women face that level of tokenism 
Um, and if they are a double minority, as in uh, they are both a gender minority and a racial minority, then they become doubly disadvantaged in the workplace. And so they face all of that stress on top of the fact that then this larger, broader umbrella of gender inequality is weighing over them as well. So um, black women and Hispanic women um, earn less than uh, white men. And um, and now, actually, Asian men as well. Asian men actually earn more than white men mm-hmm. uh, in the United States. And so uh, women of color continue to fall behind all men in regards to their earnings and their experiences in the workplace. Uh, and they're falling behind other women as well, white and yeah. Asian women as well. I would, I just, would say that it applies to health care as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Minority yeah. women, mm-hmm. much less likely am I to see them, one, receiving health care at the same level as non-minority women, and they're less likely to receive health care that is insured by a private insurance. Yes. I just quickly wanted to add that for Asian women, you know, um, the issue tends to be an expectation that you will not be assertive, right? You will be Mm -hmm. demure and feminine and in your place. And so um, then sometimes when they do speak up, the, the sense of, oh, you've betrayed your stereotype, you know, or you have a mind, or you can speak out. So I think for different communities, you know, there's going to be different stereotypes. And, uh, you know, uh, when they violate that, there's going to be surprise penalties, etc. That's right. And so you have just the opposite, right, for African-American women. Exactly. Who are seen as more aggressive, more assertive, mm-hmm. but they're not rewarded for that. Exactly. Even though that supposedly um, is something that's valued by yes. some employees. Yes. Yeah. And that's why I brought that up. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. If any of our listeners have a question, you can give us a call. We probably can't get you on the air, but you can share your question with our producer, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or one 877 outside of the Bloomington area, or you can send it to news at indianapublicmedia.org. We don't have a lot of time left, but we could still try to slide your question in. I did want to ask about a very current topic, the, the whole Me Too movement and how that is playing out in all of your dif- different disciplines. Um, uh, Kelly, you know, with, with your patients, I mean, are you, are you hearing stories that perhaps you didn't hear before? And, you know, how's it, how's it affecting the media and how's it affecting the workplace? Um, I would say from a patient standpoint, uh, the gynecologist's office has always been a place where I think women feel safe to share um, stories and experiences. Um, and so I wouldn't say the Me Too movement has created an environment where patients are more likely to tell me stories than they would have been previously. I do think the movement, though, has helped healthcare in that number of women, many of them my generation older, but also younger, which you would not maybe have anticipated as much, the number of women in healthcare who came out and said, yes, this is a real thing. I have experienced this during my past career education, um, where perhaps society as a whole would have hoped that we would not have seen it in healthcare at such the degree that we did. And so I think the awareness that it has brought has been monumental in um, helping bring um, a conversation around a real problem that does exist. Yeah. I just quickly want to say that I think, you know, the Me Too Me movement being in many ways a media movement, right, with the hashtag and mm-hmm. being spread on social media, uh, also be, being covered quite heavily in the news media. Um, and we can think about the Harvey Weinstein case here receiving so much publicity. Uh, and I think it being so much uh, covered in the entertainment field, right, which a lot of youth tend to consume. And so it has brought uh, an issue, you know, um, that's not compartmentalized anymore, right? It happens in the workplace. Human resources deals with it, right? That is not what it is now. It's come out into the open in quite an explosive way, I think. And so in many ways to me, what it has done is broken down one of those compartments I earlier spoke about in that young men, older men have all had to learn that this happens to women. 
mm-hmm. right? It's not just women learning about what happens to women. It's become an issue that, you know, many. And so I have heard many young men, many uh, college age students in our community, uh, you know, actually talking in very thoughtful ways about, wow, we did not know it happens in this way. So I think it's done that what I go back to my uh, opening statement, it has executed a pedagogy of widespread awareness, right? So that you have much more widespread awareness among all sections of society. And so in that way, I think it's been uh, quite productive. My only issue is whether it has highlighted the experiences of, once again, poor working class, racial minority women, or is it largely a discourse of privileged women? Just something to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pam, is it uh, having an effect in the, in the workplace? Um, I, well, I think it's, it is having an effect. The, um, and I, I was just watching something. I don't know if it was on public television, but uh, um, we have this crisis, of course, among Native American populations and the uh, kidnapping and assault of Native American populations. And so that speaks to the fact um, or the importance of the media and who is covered uh, in the media in terms of women who are vulnerable. And so that continues to be um, kind of uh, an effort that we have to to put forward, you know, to keep our media accountable, Mm -hmm. um, to make it clear who is at at risk. But I was also thinking about um, the effect of this movement on college campuses. So here, even on IU's campus, uh, this effort to educate students on sexual assault And most recently, uh, in my mental illness class, we talked about the fact that the prevalence of PTSD among women, the event uh, that affects them the most is sexual assault, rape, um, that type of trauma. And so there is this new understanding that uh, there can be a delayed impact of trauma. And I think that's what's critical about that movement. Uh, that's one element that's critical for people to understand that you may not necessarily absorb all of the trauma at the time of that event because mm-hmm. you're typically trying to cope with your daily life. And we know that uh, women have very complicated daily lives. And so it's the case that some of those symptoms of anxiety and those symptoms of uh, sleep problems uh, actually emerge over time. Okay. We are out of time. It's gone very quickly today. I really want to thank our, our guests uh, Radhika Paramay-Swaran, Pamela Jackson, and Kelly Casper for all being here and giving us some great information today. Uh, for Kerma Schultz, my co-host and also producer Benta Boutier and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.